Let me offer something for us to think about this morning. I've been doing that, and this is kind of where the Lord led me this past week in, in my study and, and as I was kind of processing through all this information. <clears throat> so with feelings of tiredness, feelings of frustration, feelings of any lack of breakthrough, maybe you've been working on something for a long time and you're just not seeing results, whatever that might be in life, in ministry, career, family, you name it. Lack of breakthrough, financial hardship. You know, you're putting a tremendous amount of time and effort into something and the financial expectation maybe is not there or accounts are dwindling and you're not sure what's next uh, economically, monetarily for you and your family or whatever it might be. <coughs> So financial hardship, etc., whatever else it might be. So when you think about those things that we all experience, the question for this morning is, why do we get to the point of quitting? You ever thought about quitting? Quitting your job? Just quitting the moment? <laughs> quitting life, quitting whatever. Why do we get to the point of quitting? I want us to think about that today. And why that is going to come out in our story. And we'll focus in on a particular piece of scripture that I believe speaks to that. But that's kind of what I want you guys to think about as we go through. So let's read verses 1 through 11 together in Acts 18. And then we'll get into it and see what God wants to teach us this morning. So Acts 18, starting in verse 1, it says, After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus. Recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titus Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. Verse 9, And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you or harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. So that's carrying on the second missionary journey. Paul goes now down to Corinth and carries on in ministry that we've been talking about, that we saw him do on his first journey, <clears throat> that we saw him do on his second missionary journey in Philippi and, and other places. Very similar routine, very similar structure to Paul's journey and, and what he's doing. But he travels from Athens to Corinth. Corinth. Just real quickly, was a major Roman city. 
one of the largest in the entire region. It was known, however, though, for its rampant sexual immorality. If we want to liken it to anything here, it would be the Las Vegas of the ancient world. You know, there's a, there's a phrase that what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, and there's a reason they use that term. But that was Corinth. And the reason was, is one of the main temples in Corinth was to the goddess Aphrodite. Aphrodite was the goddess of love. Remember in our conversation of <clears throat> Greek and Roman mythology and all the gods that they worshipped, hundreds and hundreds of gods. Aphrodite was one that was the goddess of love. And employed in that temple were close to 1,000 prostitutes. Religious prostitution. And so prostitution was expected, normalized, even within the religious realm of Corinth. And so this is what Paul comes into. That's why he would later address sexual immorality in the Corinthian church. He would later write in 1 Corinthians 5.1, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. And he goes on to define a lot of that, that that had infiltrated the new church in Corinth. So he had to deal with a lot of that because of the norm of what was happening in the city. But he initially would travel to Corinth by himself. <clears throat> Timothy and Silas would stay in and around uh, Thessalonica and Berea and Athens. So it was almost, there was kind of a routine where Paul and the team would come into a city, they'd minister to the Jews, the Greeks, in the marketplace, whatever. Paul would move on and his team would stay to probably encourage the church, build them up, kind of get things organized, and then they would come later and meet Paul in the next place. And that's kind of what happens here. But he goes to Corinth alone and there he meets somebody by the name of Aquila and his wife Priscilla. They would become solid missionary partners with Paul. They were believers or would become believers, but they shared the similar trade. They were tent makers, leather workers, really is what it was. They, they would create it and, and bind the, the leather together that would be then sold, used to, to make tents. And that was Paul's trade. So he found himself needing to work. He couldn't have 100% focus on the mission because funds ran out. So he had to uh, kind of pursue his trade, pursue financial gain, because otherwise he would have to stop. He'd have to quit the ministry and go home or, or figure something out. So he's spending time doing his trade for a little self-preservation, pursuing whatever he needs to do in order to maintain his ministry. But did you hear, though, verse 4, he doesn't quit. He doesn't stop ministry to make money and then go back to ministry. You see, he teams up with Aquila and Priscilla. They pursue tent making together. But at the same time, verse 4 says he didn't stop. Just rather a larger portion of his focus would need to be on financial gain, self-preservation to keep going. But we also see here, and where we focus in on today, in verses 6 through 8, we see a bit of frustration in Paul. And the reason I see and hear frustration because in our day, in our translation, we use punctuation marks in our writing. And if you notice, one of the punctuation marks used was an exclamation point. Did you catch that? In verse 6, Paul speaking to the Jews and, and getting the normal response from the Jews. So basically hostility, hatred, opposition, reviling Paul. 
<coughs> he responds to them in verse 6. says, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. Exclamation point. Now, because there's emphasis there. Would any of us get frustrated if we're constantly sharing salvation, sharing the word of God, giving life-saving information to individuals that are headed towards destruction and there's no response? People that are familiar with God, no response, no response, opposition, hatred, reviling, beating, imprisonment, time and time and time again. So this is why I started with, you ever experienced a lack of breakthrough? What was your response to that? Here's Paul's response. He says, your blood be on your own heads. Now, this is not something Paul came up with. This is scripture. But let's start with the shaking off of his garments. This was a biblical principle. It was something that Paul and uh, Barnabas did when they were in Antioch in Pisidia. In Acts chapter 13, they did the same thing. They shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. It's a sign of rejection. Look, we've spoken to you. We've talked to you. We've been in relationship and conversation. And you are constantly going to reject what I say and offer. Therefore, we're done. It was something Jesus told his own disciples to do. When he sent them out two by two, Jesus told his disciples in Luke 9, verse 5, and whenever you, they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. So it's not as if Paul is doing anything on his, in his own feelings. He's still adhering to scripture, but you can still sense the frustration in his words. Because you can't just gently, lovingly put your arm around somebody and say, you know what, my friend, your blood be on your own head. That's not a statement you make in gentleness. That's a statement of passion, if not frustration. But let me bring out a biblical principle to this of, of who Paul is and, and why he's taking this course of action in this moment. We've got to go back to the book of Ezekiel. In Ezekiel chapter 33, it's a great book. But in chapter 33, verses 2 through 5, it says this. Son of man, give your people this message. When I bring an army against a country, the people of that land choose one of their own to be a watchman. When the watchman sees the enemy coming, he sounds the alarm to warn the people. Then if those who hear the alarm refuse to take action, it is their own fault if they die. They heard the alarm, but they ignored it. So the responsibility is theirs. If they had listened to the warning, they could have saved their lives. Anybody ever lived in tornado country? When those alarms go off, do you just stand outside and just watch it come? You'd be foolish if you did. No, when that alarm goes off, you take action. When that alarm sounds, you move. You find safety 
protection. And so what Paul is acting as in this sense to all the Jews and all the synagogues that he's visiting is he's a watchman. He's taken on that role to sound the alarm of coming destruction. And they're not listening. Paul is the tornado warning. He is the siren. And they're just standing there watching the tornado come. And he says, in that case, I'm done. Your blood be on your head. If you get hurt, if you get destroyed, if you die, that's on you because you didn't heed the warning. But it says here, if they had listened, they could have saved their lives. So that's what Paul is saying. Your blood be on your head. I'm innocent. I did my job. I sounded the alarm. What you do with it is up to you. <clears throat> so basically on par with the rest of his journey, you think Paul would be used to this by now? Rejection after rejection after rejection after rejection. You think he'd just be used to it. But you don't get used to something like that. It's difficult when people don't listen when you have something that will save their life. So it can be difficult to just shrug off that hostility, shrug off that opposition. Whenever we run into something in life and ministry like that, it's not easy just to dust off your <coughs> sandals or your cloak or whatever else and just move on and go, okay, whatever. We don't do that because we're, we're human beings. We have emotion. We, we have feelings. We take on the responsibility for the well-being of other people. You as parents understand that. If you're an employer of employees, you understand that. The responsibility and safety and accountability for your employees or your, your children or whatever it might be, you take that on emotionally. In this case, what we're talking about spiritually. So sometimes it can be difficult to shrug that off and we tend to focus on the negative. We focus on the negative, even though there might be a lot of good things happening. <clears throat> the bigger picture might be good. <clears throat> but the moment something negative comes into our vision, that becomes our focus. And it takes so much time, so much attention. So it becomes a matter of perspective, doesn't it? Perspective, focus on the big picture. Paul's missional focus was the gospel. But yet that opposition here in a small, or in, not a small town, but in one city, Corinth, just got to that point of frustration. So he, for a moment, had to focus on the negative, telling them, your blood is on your head. I'm frustrated. I'm done. You're not hearing me. I've got to move on. <coughs> But let's step back a minute. Let's, let's move back and take a look at what has happened and look at the bigger picture to give us a little more perspective. And I thought this was pretty cool. We talk about the Great Commission all the time, don't we? Jesus is commissioned to, to his disciples and really to all of us. Matthew 28, 19 and 20 says, Go therefore and make disciples baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them 
to observe all that I have commanded you. And the, and the beautiful promise, verse 20, Lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. That's the Great Commission. So we see that being played out in everything that Paul is doing. <clears throat> so even though <clears throat> excuse me, he's frustrated in the moment, look at the Great Commission being fulfilled. Go, therefore, and make disciples. Has he not been doing that? Have not hundreds of people in all these towns are coming to faith in Christ? Those individuals we have talked about, Lydia, the women by the riverside, the Philippian jailer. Just this morning, we read about uh, Titus Justice, who lived next door to the synagogue. The ruler of the synagogue named Crispus comes to faith in Christ, him and his family, and join this new church. So Paul is continuing to go, therefore. He's making disciples. There are hundreds of converts to Christianity. And that's how we can read make disciples. You can bring people to faith in Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit. But also making disciples means to raise people up, equip people in ministry, equip people with the word. So they're constantly staying in the word together. He's making disciples. Churches are being established. People are being baptized. We just read that in verse 8. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. That's happening everywhere. <coughs> so go, therefore, and make disciples, baptizing them, but also teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, Jesus said. What has Paul been doing? Just in this story this morning, verse 5 and 11, it says, Paul was occupied with the word. Meaning what? He was teaching the word of God. In verse 11, and he stayed a year and six months, a year and a half, teaching the word of God among them. And then we see that promise fulfilled in verses 9 and 10. Paul's frustration. People are being baptized. Church is being established. But he's frustrated with the Jewish population that is just not listening. So in a vision at night in verses 9 and 10, God speaks to him and says, do not be afraid. But the promise for I am with you. You hear the Great Commission being fulfilled line by line through Paul and what he's doing. So if we can just step back sometimes. Yeah, we get frustrated in the moment. Yeah, we get frustrated with <coughs> certain people or certain situations or circumstances that happen. My car broke down or it's, I'm running out of money. I, I can't get it fixed or this person is just frustrating me to no end. And it won't stop. We see these little pockets of circumstances, but if we step back and look at the bigger picture of the life that God has given us, it'll give us some focus, some perspective to find our joy in the midst of what can be very frustrating circumstances when you're tired, frustrated, there's a lack of breakthrough, so on and so forth. Don't we focus on those but if you step back and go, did God wake you up this morning? Did God provide for you today? Have you eaten today? Have you clothed today? Do you have a roof over your head? Do you have the things you need to carry on? If we can look at the larger picture, it gives us the perspective that we need. Warren Wiersbe, who I love, he said this, to walk by faith means to see opportunities even in the midst of opposition. See, a pessimist 
one who always sees the negative, he'll see only problems. An optimist will see only the potential. But a realist will see the potential in the problems. See, it's not just being a pessimist or an optimist. Sometimes we can be there. But faith says, I'm going to be real because sometimes things are good. Sometimes things are bad. But can I find myself in the middle and see, even though when things are good, there's still potential in there to serve God. But when things are going wrong in those certain circumstances, I can still see the potential and opportunity God might have for me in the midst of that problem. That's faith in God, that no matter what's happening, we can focus on what him and what he wants us to do. So consider and cherish the following promises. Write these scriptures down. Memorize them if you so choose. Take them with you. Recall them when you have those moments of negativity, those moments when something just goes wrong. Focus on these things. One of them is Isaiah chapter 41, verse 10. Isaiah chapter 41, verse 10. It says this, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. What a beautiful promise. That when you've got the negative going on, can you step back and go, okay, God, I need a word from you. And he says, here. Here's one. What a beautiful promise. The next one I want you to write down and, and focus on is just two, two chapters later. Isaiah chapter 43, verses 1 and 2 says this, he who created you, he who formed you, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. Is that comforting? God who says, I created you, I formed you, I've redeemed you, you belong to me. So when you go through these problems, when you go through this negativity, this frustration, this lack of breakthrough, this financial hardship, guess what? You're still mine. I love you. I'm with you. I'll carry you through. This stuff isn't going to destroy you. It's not going to hurt you. Do you have to go through it? Yes. I didn't even save my own son from brutal torture and death. So you're not promised a life without adversity. It's going to happen. But step back and focus on who God is. What's been our challenge the last couple of weeks? Your view of God, how well you know God, is going to determine your outlook on life. Is that becoming a little more real today? <coughs> Excuse me. Because we can focus on the negative too much. And we forget the God who created us, formed us, redeemed us, loved us, sent his son to die for us, and promises us, I'm with you. So let me, let me do this as we move forward in, our, in chapter 18. I'm going to summarize the middle portion. 
I want you to read it. Please do so. Take, take some time today or tomorrow and, and read line by line this whole chapter. But I'm just gonna, for this morning, for, for time's sake, we're going to summarize first off verses 12 through 17. Basically what happens, the exact same routine takes place. Paul's frustrated. The Jews aren't listening. <clears throat> so in a coordinated attack, they come after him once again. They bring him before the Roman proconsul. Gallio is his name. And they try and get him convicted of crimes of preaching Jesus Christ in this Roman colony. But remember God's promise in verse 10? It comes through. So Paul is about to speak up and, and defend himself. And before he could, Gallio opens up his mouth and says, Stop to the Jews. You have nothing to say. There's nothing that this man has done that's wrong. There is nothing illegal about what he is doing. If you have a problem with his religious beliefs, go and deal with it yourself. So what Gallio says is, this is not a Roman legal issue. This is a matter of religious interpretation. You're dismissed. So basically what he does is he affirms Christianity. He doesn't legalize Christianity, but he affirms it, meaning it's okay in his Roman colony, in his area. But the people can't stand that decision. And so because they need to take out their frustration somehow, they take the new leader of the synagogue, his name is Sosthenes, and they beat him right in front of Gallio. Not to death, but they beat him. But maybe, even though Sosthenes seems a unique name to us, it wasn't very unique back then, and there's a Sosthenes mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. So maybe, Paul writing to the Corinthian church later on, this leader of the synagogue who got beat by his own people, maybe, just maybe, came to faith in Christ and joined the new Corinthian church. And Paul mentions his name, maybe even elevating himself to be a leader in that church. Not sure, but could be. In verses 18 through 23, we read that Paul, along with Aquila and Priscilla, remember they had a, a good relationship built now. <clears throat> Maybe in their time together, Paul had been discipling them in the faith, building them up that much more to the point that they would travel with Paul. Paul leaves Corinth and he heads back towards Syria or Israel, Jerusalem. He's going to start making his way back towards the mother church. So essentially saying that the second missionary journey is winding down. Paul sets his mind to head to Jerusalem to report to the church all that has happened. But on their journey back, they stop at Ephesus. Ephesus is located in Asia or modern day southwestern Turkey. Now, if that rings a bell, we'd have to go back to the very beginning of this missionary journey. Remember when they were traveling through and two times they tried to go down into Asia and the spirit of God said, nope. And so they traveled on and made their way to Philippi. Well, Ephesus is in Asia. So 
what was a closed door at one, one point, God said, bless you. It's open now. God has his timing. But now it was open for Paul and his team to go in and to reach Ephesus. So he carries on. He goes into the synagogue, but he doesn't stay long. Because he, he's going to travel back to Jerusalem. But Aquila and Priscilla stay in Ephesus while Paul travels back to Jerusalem. And as it finishes out, it says he travels to Jerusalem. He reports to the church and then goes up to <coughs> excuse me, Antioch. And then actually goes back into Galatia and the surrounding region, encouraging the churches. So basically, what we see in those verses is Paul in the second journey and then start the third journey, which we'll get into next week. But I want to pick up again and look at verses 24 through 28. I want to read those verses together because I think it's important as we bring all this together. So verse 24 of chapter 18 says, Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who were he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Now the reason I, I want to quickly read that and mention this section is because of one particular thing that happens. Discipleship. You see what happened there? Everything we read about this guy, Apollos, <coughs> if, if we read the key words about his, his life, he was <coughs> eloquent, competent. He was instructed, meaning he spent time in school studying the scriptures. He was fervent in spirit. He spoke well. He taught accurately. He spoke boldly. He powerfully refuted the Jews in the public. I think he'd be a top-notch, Paul-esque type individual, which he was. But what? He only knew of the teaching of John the Baptist, which simply was just repentance and repentance alone. So if we go back to the Gospels, we know John was a forerunner of Christ. And John was a teacher. John was powerful. And John spoke eloquently. And John had a lot of disciples. So this even tells us maybe that some of John the Baptist's disciples during the time of Christ made their way all the way over to Alexandria, which is in northern Egypt, northern Africa, and were teaching the way of John there. And maybe that's where Apollos heard about Christ. But he only knew of the baptism of John, which means what? What can we surmise from that statement? He didn't know the complete, full scope of the ministry of Jesus Christ. Or that of the power and the gifting of the Holy Spirit. Or maybe even salvation by grace through Jesus' name. Maybe he didn't, wasn't familiar with the death and resurrection of Christ. Because he didn't have the full story. He was good. He was competent. 
He was fervent. He was a good teacher. But it just wasn't complete. Until Aquila and Priscilla, who had just spent the last year and a half with Paul, pulled him aside. <coughs> Basically say, you know what? You're doing well. But let us look at scripture a little more in depth. And they give him the full scope of the power of the Holy Spirit. Salvation by grace. The death and resurrection of Christ and how that applies to us. And almost immediately then, Apollos travels on saying, this is great. This is what I needed. Let me go back to the churches and encourage and teach and preach and speak to the Jews. And so they write a letter on his behalf, welcoming him back in Corinth and Thessalonica and Berea and that surrounding region. And he goes on a massive preaching circuit to the point of having influence in that Paul would speak about him in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6. <coughs> Paul would write, I planted, meaning I came in initially and planted this church and brought the gospel of Jesus. Apollos watered. Meaning Apollos came in and continued to teach you the things of Christ. But God gave the growth. So Apollos had a tremendous ministry of teaching and preaching in this early church. Because he was willing to be discipled and willing to be in community with other believers. So here's how I want to finish out this morning. We started with a question. Feelings of tiredness, frustration, lack of breakthrough, financial hardship, etc. Why do we get to the point of quitting? Now, possible answer to that, if you did answer it, is, well, duh, because I'm tired, because I'm frustrated, because I'm not seeing breakthrough, because I don't have money, I'm tired of beating my head against the wall, I quit. It's an easy answer. But do you hear the emphasis in all that, that answer? I'm tired. I'm frustrated. I don't have. I'm not seen. Therefore, I quit. Is that how we're supposed to live? Is that the focus we're supposed to have? What did God say to Paul about quitting? Verse 10. He said, carry on. Keep going. Do not be afraid. Essentially, God is telling Paul, don't quit. <clears throat> there is ministry to be done. There is life to be had. I will be with you. So we need the perspective to step back and say, it's not about me so much as it is the strength that I get through Christ to carry on despite being tired, despite not having money, despite not seeing immediate breakthrough. I won't quit because God doesn't want me to quit. God has more for me. I need to be reliant upon him. So here's what I want to do. I want to give you five steps, five things to think about when you just get to the point of quitting. Gave you a couple verses in Isaiah to focus on. Please do. This does not supersede scripture. But some five practical things I want you to consider. Write these down if you can. Or later on when all this gets posted and I edit out all the coughing, I will post this so you can grab the notes later on. You can download these notes. You guys know that? It, my sermon notes are always attached to the videos that I post on our website if you ever want to go back and read through things. 
But we've all been at that point. We've all experienced these feelings. So number one, first and foremost, we need to remember who God is. If you're going to quit because you're tired, because you're frustrated, step back and stop looking in the mirror and look to who God is. Remember what we said. He created you. He loves you. He sent his son to die for you. He redeemed you. He wants to give you life. Remember Jesus' words in John 10, 10, the thief only comes to steal and kill and destroy. <clears throat> See, the enemy wants you to quit. The enemy wants to steal your joy. He wants to destroy your life and ministry. But Jesus says, I have come that you may have life and life abundantly. Remember that. John 10, 10. Make note of that. First and foremost, remember who gave you life in Jesus' name. Number two, consider your little. Not that you're little, but consider your little. What do I mean by that? What do you have inside you that's tiny, but that can work wonders? Faith. A lot of people will say, well, you just don't have enough faith. You need more faith. You know how unbiblical that statement is? Oftentimes, Jesus looked at his own disciples and said, oh, you of little faith. But when you read that, <clears throat> what is he actually saying? You who lack faith. You who don't have faith. When we internalize everything and we look at ourselves, we're not living in faith. We're living on our own will. But just a little bit of faith in Jesus Christ. What did Jesus say about that? Matthew 17, 20. If you have a faith like a grain of mustard seed. If I was practical enough, I probably would have tried to bring mustard seed. You know how small those are? If I held it right now, you wouldn't be able to see it from where you're sitting. It's that small. If you have faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. <clears throat> so all you need is a little faith. But also remember what we said about belief and trust and faith in Christ. Your full weight and measure on who Christ is and what he wants for you, just a little bit, nothing is impossible. So when you focus on God and you have true faith, even a little bit, nothing will overwhelm you. The old-time Quaker, his name is George Fox from the 1600s, said, And so be of good faith and valiant for the truth, for the truth can live in the jails. Where do you think he got that line? Paul and Silas in prison. After being beaten in the stocks, in the inner prison, what were they doing? Praying. Praising God. George Fox says, even truth can live in the jails. Fear not the loss of the fleece, for it will grow again. And follow the lamb. If it be under the beast's horns or under the beast's heels, for the lamb shall have victory over them all. <coughs> See, we can be defeated. 
We can be beat down, but Jesus Christ cannot. So if we follow him with a little bit of faith, we'll get through. Remember what Jesus said in Luke 16, 10, one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. So we need to consider the little. Be faithful in the small things and watch your faith grow more and more. Number three, desire service. Desire service. Want to serve. Somebody by the name of Hannah Whittall Smith, another Quaker. She lived her life in the 1800s. And she wrote a book called The The Christian Secret of a Happy Life. And in it she said, what we need in the Christian life is to get believers to want to do God's will as much as other people want to do their own will. Interesting correlation. We need to get people to want to do God's will, to desire to serve God. But how often do you just get tired of the routine, frustrated with the monotony of your day? That you're trying to scrape yourself off the floor to go and serve God in life, in ministry, in work, in family. Anybody remember the moment they gave their life to Christ when they sold out for Jesus? How excited you were, how passionate you were. But that fades over time. Why? Because we're human. But we need to get back to that place where we desire to serve God. We want to serve God. But that's not done in your own will, is it? That's not done by you going, I want to serve. (coughs) You can't have a desire to serve any more than you can make that mustard seed grow. It happens by the will of God in your life. The strength of the Spirit in you. What does it say in Philippians 2.13? For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It's God who works in you. We need to be open and available for that. Is God a good God? Is God a God of love? Is God a God of joy and peace? If he's working in you and you're allowing that, resting in that, (coughs) being dependent upon that, do you think you're going to want to then have a desire to serve and love and work for his glory? Yeah, you will. That's why when you're tired, Jesus says, come to me. All you who are tired and weary, connect with me, walk with me. And let me show you the life that you can live. Psalm 37, 3 and 4 says, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. (coughs) Remember who God is. Consider your faith. Desire service. And number four, seek peace in the midst of adversity. Seek peace in the midst of adversity. Is that easy? No. No. Of course not. (laughs) Of course not. We want peace after it all. 
When we're tired, we just want to lay down and go, I'm done. I'm tired. But how about in the midst of that tiredness, the midst of that frustration, in the midst of not seeing breakthrough and financial hardship? Somebody else by the name of Thomas Akempis. Thomas Akempis. He lived his life in the 1300s. He was a monk. His full scope of life, he was a monk. Lived in a monastery from the age of 19 until he died at the age of 90 or 91. He, is not, he did not have an exciting life. He didn't do anything traumatic or, or crazy to get into the history books. He was a monk. But he would say this. No matter how hard we try, our lives will never be without strife and grief. Thus, we should not strive for a peace that is without temptation or for a life that never feels adversity. Peace is not found by escaping temptations, but by being tried by them. So consider your source of adversity. Again, I go back to when you're feeling tired, frustrated, you just want to quit, you're done. What is the source of those feelings? Where is it coming from? It's going to come from outside influence or it's going to come from internal thoughts, internal feelings. But irregardless of where that comes from, if our mind is set on the things of God, whether that adversity is from the outside or it's coming from within, will be able to face that adversity. 1 Corinthians 10:12 says, "Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall." It's a mindset. You think you stand? Be careful, you're going to fall because you're standing on your own will. You're standing <coughs> excuse me, in your own pride. Remember what Jesus or, or scripture says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So you don't stand on your own will. You don't pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. It's Christ who lives in you. Paul would say to the Roman church, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So that by testing, when adversity comes, when you're tired and worn out and frustrated and you want to quit, you can discern what the will of God is. What is good and acceptable and perfect. In the midst of that adversity, with your mind set on the things of God, you can find your peace in the God who is peace. 2 Corinthians 10.5, something I memorized a long time ago and hold on to, and something I throw out at a lot of people all the time. So I highly recommend, encourage you, as much as I can, memorize this scripture. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5. As we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion 
raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Did you hear that? We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion, everything that's going to be thrown your way, every dart from the enemy, every spiritual attack in your mind that the enemy speaks to you saying, you're not good enough, just quit, forget it. You don't need God. Did God really say like he did for Adam and Eve? No, we destroy every argument. We destroy every opinion. Every lie from the pit of hell that is thrown our way. Because we take captive. We choke out those things in our mind. There are so many more scriptures that speak to the importance of our mind and our thought process. Colossians 3, 2 says, set your mind on things above, not on the things of this earth. So we set our mind on the things of God, regardless of what happens, external attack or internal thoughts of wanting to quit. We can find our peace and purpose because we're staying faithful to who God is and what he wants for us. Number five. The reason we focused on Aquila, Priscilla, and their discipleship of Apollos. Number five, community is a must. Community is a must. You may be familiar with Dietrich Bonhoeffer. You heard that name before? Dietrich Bonhoeffer lived in the 1900s. Born in 1909, lived till 1945 in Germany. Lived under the, the rule of Adolf Hitler. Studied theology. Became a pastor. Came, traveled to America and was over in New York. Went back to Germany. Because he got caught up in the, the attacks and everything against Adolf Hitler. He was tried and convicted of being a part of a, a group that was going to assassinate Hitler. and He was killed. He was hung. So he was only, what, 39, 40 years old. But everything that he wrote is so powerful. And this is what Dietrich Bonhoeffer says about community. So think about and the reason I gave you that little bit of background, finding community in the midst of rough circumstances. He says, I have community with others and I shall continue to have it only through Jesus Christ. The more genuine and the deeper our community becomes, the more will everything between us recede. The more clearly and purely will Jesus Christ and his work become the one and only thing that is vital between us. Christian brotherhood is not an ideal which we must realize. Meaning, we don't try and create community. The moment we give our life to Christ, we are immediately a part of a community of millions of people worldwide. <laughs> so we don't have to create it. He says, it's not an ideal which we must realize. It is rather created by God and Christ in which we may participate. 
in which we may participate, which means you have a choice. You can go live your life on your own, or you can envelop yourself in community with people that will encourage you, walk beside you, pray with you, cry with you, help you, whatever it might be. See, Paul entered Corinth, as we said, and he actually defines this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He says, I entered Corinth in weakness and in fear and much trembling. Because Paul rolled into Corinth by himself. Paul and, or Timothy and Silas stayed back. He hadn't yet come in contact with Priscilla and Aquila. He was by himself. And he says, I was weak, I was afraid, and I was trembling. Because he was by himself. Until he found Aquila and Priscilla, connected himself to community, worked together, ministered together, and the list goes on. So consider the same for Lydia and the women by the riverside, the Philippian jailer and his family, the Bereans who were studying and searching scripture daily, Silas, Timothy, Luke, Aquila and Priscilla, Titus, Justus, Crispus, Sosthenes, Apollos, and all the others we've talked about. They found purpose in community by joining this church and staying connected with people that would encourage them. If you want a cheesy acronym to remember. <laughs> Something as a former coach, I'd, I'd always say, or it would come up a lot. One, they say there's no I in team. You can't spell team with an I. There's no individuals in a team mindset. But you know what team also stands for? Together, everyone achieves more. It's cheesy, but it makes sense. When you're with other people, you rely on other people. You help other people and you be helped by people. You get to know other people and other people get to know you. When you're in community and you surround yourself and you stay there as much as possible, when you get tired, when you get frustrated, when you're not seeing breakthrough, when there's a lack of financial uh, provision, or whatever it might be, and you just want to quit, where should you find yourself? In community. Be with people. Ephesians 2.19 says, But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. This is why the church exists. Not the building, not the program, but the people. You come together to be with other people, to be encouraged together in God's word. And let me leave you with this. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12. says, For just as the body is one, it has many members. And all the members of the body, though many, are one body. So it is with Christ. He would go down in verse 25 and 6 and say that there may be no division in the body but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together, meaning community, together, for the same purpose of growing in our faith in God and serving together in the community, bringing the gospel to others. So, all that together, 
when you get to the point of wanting to quit, remember, God created you. He loves you and he sent his son to give you life abundantly. Number two, consider that little faith that he has placed in you. Albeit small, but true faith can move mountains. Number three, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desire to carry on. Four, set your mind on the things of God and you will have peace in the midst of your adversity. And five, community. Surround yourself with other Christians, other believers, in consistent community. And it's there you'll find discipleship and encouragement. And then listen to the voice of God when he says, carry on. Don't quit. Keep going. There's more to be done. Let me strengthen you. Let me uphold you. Let's just keep going.